Good morning, everyone. I know nothing says Mother's Day like a passage about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So um, <laughs> I'm sorry, just kind of played out that way. It's just that's the way it goes. Um, I'm also aware that on Sunday mornings or a Sunday morning like this, we can get a lot of visitors. So I want to add my welcome to what Taylor just said and just uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we've been studying the book of Revelation since the end of February, and this morning we're starting the fourth section of the book. And for some people, this is where they think the real interesting things start, the, the exciting things begin. And for some people that may, if you didn't go to a church, grow up going to a church, or if you're not even a Christian, this is the part of the section of, of Revelation that can kind of actually be a bit of a turnoff. And in one sense, this Sunday morning is not really different from any other Sunday morning. Jesus, at one and the same time, is both attractive and offensive, right? Jesus is both compelling and he's a bit repelling. Jesus brings comfort and yet he is uncomfortable. Uh, but mornings like this and the passage that we're looking at require a little bit more... Um, finesse to unpack this kind of unusual paradox. So what I want to do is two things this morning. Number one, I want to talk about what it is that we just heard from David this morning. What, what, what was it that David just read from Revelation 6 and 8? And in general, what is it that we're reading when we read the book of Revelation? And the second thing I want to do, and so for that, really, I'm, I'm going to be putting on a little bit of my professor hat. Uh, so, you know, um, last week was definitely more my pastor-preacher hat. This week's a little bit more my professor hat because I want to set up a way of thinking about this book that's going to be really helpful as we move forward. Because, as I said, we're moving into this section where there's a lot of just symbolism and visions and all kinds of things that can be really confusing. And so I want to be really clear how we go about thinking about this. So this morning may seem almost a bit like a lecture, and I, I hope that doesn't bore you, but I, I think you will find it really encouraging. But the second thing I also want to do is talk about what it is that we're seeing when we read about the seven seals here in Revelation 6 through 8. So those are our two objectives this morning. Let's begin with just kind of the reading of Revelation. I, I kind of, first person I want to address is those who may be uncomfortable with the message of Revelation, whether you are not a Christian and you're just not familiar with all of this, or maybe even you are a Christian and you're just uncomfortable when you're reading portions of Scripture that talk about God's wrath and destruction and mayhem and all this kind of thing. Let me just say, number one, I get it, right? I mean, I can understand why you might feel that way. I mean, you, you, you hear this stuff and it might even reinforce in your mind that Christianity is just kind of out of touch with reality. I mean, what you just heard David read can sound more like the Lord of the Rings than, than what you encounter every day in your real lives, right? So that might reinforce your thinking that Christianity is really irrelevant to the things of this world, this world that we face right now so full of crises, right? Global pandemics, economic disparity, climate change, political, social fragmentation, and a whole host of other modern struggles. And you come to church and you're hearing about some Nazgul creatures or the wrath of a lamb. And you're like, okay, if this is what Christianity has to give, this is probably why I don't engage with it. So let me just say, I understand how you can come to that conclusion. So I want to say a couple things. Number one, the first thing you need to know, the book of Revelation is, is not literal. It's not primarily literal. It is symbolic. Revelation is vision, not history. Revelation does what um, 
good art or good photography do for us today? Now, I'm not a good artist or a photographer, so I really appreciate when I see someone who's really good. And, and a photographer from our first service told me that, uh, she says I was spot on. And, and what I've been noticing, when, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, whenever you saw photos, it was pretty much whatever the object was, was front and center, and the focus was clear, the lighting was good, and you framed it right there, and that was the picture. Now, and I don't know if it's because of Instagram or just, we're just more creative, but before, the object in the picture was the story, was the, the, the thing. Now, it seems like the way you take pictures interprets what you're supposed to be seeing. So, they, they use out of focus intentionally. They use light, darkness to obscure things. They off-center things. In other words, the actual picture itself is an interpretation of the thing you're looking at, and you're supposed to get a feeling from the way the actual picture's taken, as well as what it's being a picture of, right? Good art does this, especially if you're familiar with impressionistic art. When I was younger, I'd look at this art and go, you can't even make sense of what I'm looking at here, this Van Gogh or whatever. As you get mature, you realize that they were trying to communicate certain ideas by obscuring things, by making it hard to understand. Revelation serves that kind of purpose. It wants us to look at things in a different way. Now, that being said, because I know I can make, uh, I mean, I can make Christians, I'm a Christian, but I can make some people concerned by saying that this book of the Bible is not primarily literal. Okay, let me, let me address that. Just because something is symbolic or a vision doesn't make it any less real. Let me say that again. Just because something's symbolic or a vision, it doesn't make it any less real. In fact, symbols and vision can often help us understand reality even more than concrete particulars can, right? And, and this is why, my friends, the best stories in our culture the best stories that grip us captivate both our imaginations and our intellect. The best stories inspire us as well as inform us and teach us about ourselves and about the world around us. That's what the book of Revelation is doing. It, it is using this kind of vision and symbols and art almost to inspire and inform, okay? Second thing I want to say is that the book of Revelation does not teach us a single brand new thing that the rest of the Bible doesn't already teach. The difference is that Revelation puts it in this, this kind of vivid, grand narrative of the ultimate struggle between good and evil. So if you like anything that Jesus has said, you're going to see the same thing in this book, but it's in the backdrop of the ultimate reality of what Jesus was always about, that we are in this conflict between ultimate good and ultimate evil, and Revelation makes that, puts that issue front and center. Uh, last thought, um, John, the author of Revelation, says in chapter 1, verse 9, he writes this, I, John, your partner in the tribulation and endurance was writing to, to comfort the churches. John wants the Christians, all Christians, in all places, all times, all cultures, all situations, to be comforted by these words and encouraged, inspired, and emboldened by these words to understand the reality behind reality. 
Friends, the fact that Revelation is primarily symbolic as opposed to primarily literal is exactly why and how this book has encouraged, comforted, and emboldened the church in all times, in all places, in all cultures for 2,000 years. It's really important we get that because if we interpret this book primarily as literal, then it only has application to one, maybe two groups. It only applies to the first century of Christians who received this, or it only applies to the last century of Christians who are going to live through this. It might apply to both, but certainly not the rest of us wherever we might find ourselves in history. Let me explain briefly. You've seen this diagram I wrote before. If we interpret Revelation primarily as literal, then it only applies to really the first century of Christians to whom it was written for, and they believed it was the end of the Roman Empire. This view believes that the book of Revelation basically ends at 100 AD in the Roman Empire. On the other hand, and if you've been a Christian and you became a Christian in the last, you know, kind of influence in the last probably 30, 40 years, you kind of grew up under this school of thought. That Revelation, by and large, is talking about the last century, right? At some point in the future when Jesus comes back. As I said, that's what I grew up thinking. But for the most part, then, if it's either for the first century or the last century, everyone else, it doesn't really apply if you believe this to be primarily literal. So it has to be symbolic because Jesus says, remember chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus says, All who hear, all who read and keep the words of this book will be blessed. So that's got to mean not just the Christians of the first century or the last century. That's got to mean anyone who reads, who hears, and keeps the word of this book. Furthermore, remember to every church in chapters 2 and 3, the Spirit said, or Jesus says, let all the churches hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. So that's got to be all of us whether you're the first century, the last century, or somewhere in between. So that means Revelation has to be primarily symbolic to apply to all of history, but not as a timeline. And that's where this historicist view comes up. The the historicist view kind of looks at it like this, as if if the third chapter maps onto the third century and the fourth chapter maps onto the fourth century. That's not literally how they view it. But for example, they'll say that the locust plague of Revelation 9 matches on to the Muslim invasion, the Islamic invasion in the sixth century AD. Okay, friends, that's not symbolism. That's allegory where you're just kind of picking random details and making it fit the text. That's not how we handle Scripture. So that's problematic. Secondly, it's problematic because who says it's got to be Western history that determines the biblical interpretation? Why can't it be the events of Eastern history? For example, the people who live primarily in in, in Russia, in the Eastern part of the world. For that reason, why can't it be Polynesian history? Why does it have to be uh, why does the historicist view of the fulfillment of, of Revelation, excuse me, have to be determined by historical Western events. It's just problematic, see? 
So this means that revelation has to be this idealist view. In other words, that revelation is primarily symbolic, and these symbols represent a repeated fulfillment throughout history. They're not determined by particular events or particular people as much as representative of of a general kind of pattern that will repeat throughout the history of humanity, regardless of your culture, regardless of your time. But, but will result in some historic fulfillment. Because at the end of the day, friends, I want to be very clear on this. Jesus is not going to symbolically come back, okay? He's literally coming back, right? So I just want to be clear on that. Now, I have more to say on that later this morning, but for now, let's kind of turn back to the text and unpack what it is we're looking at here in Revelation 6 and then the first part of chapter 8. As we turn to these two chapters, we're leaving behind the, the, the majesty, the serenity, and the, the beauty of God's throne room that we looked at in chapters 4 and 5, and the camera lens, so to speak, turns to really a world that's in tumultuous chaos. And so, I titled the first 11 verses of chapter 6, oh, did I change the spelling? Oh, I, I, I misspelled it, okay. <laughs> Please ignore it, I misspelled it, I was typing it in a rush. I, I'm... I'm <laughs> Entitle it, The Afflictions of Humanity, verses 1 through 11. Now, what I want you to notice something, especially because most of you have grown up in an era like me that you were taught a certain view of revelation, that it was all in the future and these four horsemen and the apocalypse is the coming doom and all that. And my main point is that's not the case at all. Here's my first argument. Did you notice that no particular wars are mentioned? No particular diseases, no particular slaughter, no particulars, in fact, are given at all. These four horsemen are actually representative of just general terms being used. These four horsemen, as we'll see briefly, represent the realities that have always been with us, have always been all over the planet, with one noticeable exception that we see in Revelation, and that each of these horsemen are under the command of the Lord Almighty. So let's take a look at them one by one. The first seal is open, right? Remember from last week, we're talking about the scroll that the lamb and only the lamb is worthy to open the seals. So he opens the seal in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, and we're introduced to a white horse, and his rider has a bow, right? And he comes out conquering and to conquer, and then quickly gallops out the scene to do just that. Well, most theologians and scholars recognize that this horseman, this what we call the first horseman of the apocalypse, was representative of war. Uh, there's another way you can look at that is this, this, four, this first horseman is representative of, of humanity's political or military expansion regardless of what happens as a result of that expansion. And the reason we say that is, number one, uh, he comes out to conquer. That's his goal. He has a bow of war in his hands. And typically, the first century would have understood this, uh, the white horse being common of uh, uh, Roman generals riding a white horse in triumph through a processional. And so it showed their victory, their purity, their integrity. And so this was a common sight to see a, a, a triumphant general on a white horse galloping as he conquered. So immediately, they would have recognized what this was. Now, last year, I read a book called A Short History of Europe from Pericles to Putin, and it covers from 2500 BC to 2018. So, I mean, it's, it's a long time. It was only 350 pages, so it went pretty quick. But I remember when I finished the book, I told my wife, I said, honey, after reading this book, if I had to describe the history of Europe in one word, I think I could do it. War. War. 
from the founding of the, the, from as far as two centuries before, two millennia before A.D., Europe was marked by war. And it's not just Europe. If you know anything about Asian history, I'm very familiar with Japanese history and their feudal period. It's war. War marks humanity's history. And if I have another word, it'd be struggle. War, struggle, conflict. That's the first horseman of this apocalypse. The second seal is broken. Look at verse 3 and 4. And the second horseman of the apocalypse comes out. He comes riding out on a bright red horse to take away peace from the earth. Now, a lot of times people say, well, that, that, that's war right there. That's not war. Even though it says that, that people would slay one another. And there's a couple reasons we can interpret that. Historically, um, it would have been men, and some older translations call that men slaying one another, but this is just all people slaying one another. We now understand this horseman to represent just general civil unrest because it's not just war that takes people's lives, right? It's not just war, but all manner of unrest from global conflict to robberies at the 7-Eleven to carjackings. There are many things that takes people's lives. This second horseman takes peace from people and replaces it with unrest in society. In verses 5 and 6, the third seal is now broken and a black horse comes out. And this horse represents, this horseman represents scarcity, struggle. You might even say economic disparity. Now before, people would struggle with this horseman because of the, the symbolism of the scales. And typically in our society, what do the scales represent? What was that? Justice, yes, because Lady Justice is blind, right? But keep in mind, that would be more, more of a Western modern view. The scales were very commonly associated with economics because you literally understood how much you were getting for the value of the gold you put on the scale. So while we, and you can see why it's also associated with justice, but the scale probably would have represented more of an economic understanding, but particularly what he says in verse 6. So look at chapter 6 and verse 6. Uh, the rider cries out, a voice, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Well, what, what in the world is he talking about? Well, if you know anything about their economy, uh, a, a wheat of quart was a, probably just about what a man might eat in a day. A denarius was just about as much a man would earn in a day. And so he's saying a, 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 a wheat for denarius, a quart of wheat for denarius, just enough money to earn just enough to eat. No more, no less. You are barely making ends meet. And the, 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 the issue with the inflation of the barley here roughly would have been about 8 to 16 times the going price of barley. And so what this is talking about is there's just an economic disparity and scarcity and famine in the land. Interesting. And I don't think this is reading into it because this is something that happened throughout all history. However, the very, very wealthy will be okay. They're a little bit torn on what is the reference about oil and wine, typically because the oil and wine were something uh, luxuries afforded to the very wealthy. So that was okay. If you were very wealthy, you'd be okay. But by and large, your life's going to be marked by scarcity and struggle. The fourth seal is opened, and the fourth and last horseman comes out, verses 7 and 8. This is a pale horse, and his rider is death. Older translations called it pestilence because the Greek word death here is thanatos. I know you Marvel fans are all recognizing that name, right? 
Thanos, but Thanos or Thanatos means death, but it's a death that's typically associated with disease and plague. And so while we can say that this, horse, this fourth horseman represents death, it also be translated as pestilence or plague. Either one, it results in death. So let's take a step back. What are we looking at here? The four horsemen of the apocalypse, war, civil unrest, scarcity, pestilence, plague, death. Friends, these aren't describing a future time, are they? This is not a secret time in the future. Really, what you're, they're being, what's being described here, if you know anything about history, is they're just describing history. These aren't four horsemen of the apocalypse. These are the four horsemen of life in a tragically broken world that we all live in. And what we're seeing here in Revelation is that God's people feel and experience that brokenness just like everyone else. We're going to get to that in the fifth seal. Yet, even though God's people feel and experience that brokenness, it is not meaningless, it is not in vain, and it will not go unanswered for. We see this in the fifth seal, verses 9 through 11 of chapter 6. When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the, uh, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, now, immediately we would read that and say, well, these are martyrs, right? But that doesn't say. It just says they were slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Friends, that, 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 that shows anyone, if you read chapters 2 and 3, any Christian living faithful to the gospel witness. And they cried out with a loud voice, O Lord, holy and true. And here's the first important question of our chapter. How long? How long? Before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. See, God's people here. This is a vision of God's people, all God's people. And they are crying out, Lord, we live in a broken world because humanity has rejected you. And we experience its brokenness like anyone else. How long until you act in justice, in injustice? How long until you do something about this? We are recipients of a broken world because of the rebellion against you, and we're feeling it. When are you going to make it right? When are you going to change it? I want you to notice two things that are built into the question. Number one, an understanding that God is in charge, that God is in charge, and number two, he determines all the times of what's taking place. And we see this all through the text, don't we? I mean, even down to the four living creatures telling the four horsemen, do you realize, if we look at verses one, three, five, and seven, the seals get open, but the horsemen do not move until what happens? Until they are told, come, and then they are told what to do. So the horsemen are told to come, and they are given authority, they are given a sword, they are given a crown, they are given the ability to do what they need to do. God is in charge. Now, if you're paying attention, and you're listening, and you should be thinking, wait a minute, are you actually saying that these four horsemen, war, scarcity, calamity, death, pestilence, are being used by God. They're subject to God's rule. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Wait, what the heck's going on? Okay, for that, now I need to, I want to put a period there. Now, you remember last week I talked about Revelation. We're going to talk a little bit about this in a bit, but 
It's like a Christopher Nolan movie. You got flash forwards, flashbacks, and you got to track this. What is going on here? Let's take a, take a step. What did we talk about last week? Chapter 5. Who's worthy to open the scroll? It was the Lamb. Why is He worthy? Because He had been slain. When did that happen? The death, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. So chapter 5 of Revelation is going back to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection back in the Gospels, and it's kind of showing us what took place. If you were here in the summer, we did that series, One Act of Righteousness, and we talked about Jesus' work as He ascends to heaven, Jesus' work as He stands at the right hand of the Father, right? This is part of that work. He was the Lamb worthy to open the scroll. And so what's going on now is that Jesus has subjugated all realities under his control and purposes, including war, calamity, scarcity, pestilence, death. They are all under his command. Now, we could say that that was always the case throughout history. But we see now, because of Christ, we are in the last times, Christ is ratcheting up. He's using these things. They're not just meaninglessly going through the world because of sin. He has harnessed them, and he's using them for his dual purposes. Well, what are those dual purposes? To sanctify his people and to judge those who reject the gospel. Friends, I know this is hard because we, in our culture, we view all suffering as wrong and as bad, and we got to get rid of it all the time, right? That's just the way we are. We don't have categories for suffering being redeeming, but the Bible talks about it all the time. In the same way that the sufferings of Christ on the cross had both a redemptive and judicial purpose, so does all the suffering of all God's people. Well, what do I mean by that? The suffering of Christ on the cross had a redemptive purpose, didn't it? It satisfied God's demands upon us, and so if we had faith in His suffering, the, the demands of the law on us have been redeemed. We're redeemed. It's been fulfilled in Christ. It also has a judicial purpose because those people who reject Christ's work will be judged because of what happened to Christ. In the same way, suffering has the same functioning in our lives, and we see it right there on the cross. Two thieves on the cross, one suffering next to him. What happens to him? His heart softens, and he says to the other thief, stop mocking him. You and I deserve to be here. We did this to ourselves, not him. When you come to your kingdom, remember me. His heart was softened. What about the other criminal? His suffering, what did it do to him? It hardened him. And he mocked Christ and got angry at him. If you're the son of God, get off of the thing and get us off with you. Suffering will either harden us or it'll soften us. The same sun that hardens the clay is the same sun, same sun that melts the wax. Just as the suffering of Christ on the cross served a redemptive and judicial purpose, so does the suffering of God's people, refining us, making us like him, and judging the world for their sin. So God is in charge of these horsemen. And, and, and in some way, it's, it's amazing, they are both sanctifying us through our sufferings and judging the world. And the world will be judged because those things come because of the world's rebellion. Um, keep your finger in Revelation. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We won't look at the whole thing, but I think Peter makes the point. 1 Peter chapter 1, it's a couple pages to the left, don't go too far. Uh, verse 6. Now keep in mind, 
Peter, this wonderful pastor, is writing to suffering Christians in the diaspora right about the time where the Roman government starts to persecute the Christians. And, um, you know, in verse 4, he's talking about this amazing inheritance that's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and God's keeping it in heaven for you. But then look in verse 6. So, in this you rejoice, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Go back to Revelation 6. And so Peter says, look, your, your, test, your faith's being tested and you're struggling, but it's refining you. And it'll be revealed for what it is. And all glory is going to be going to God on that day. Well, we see the realities. That we're living in a broken world. And calamity, scarcity, death. Though from our perspective, we are so blessed where we're living. It's, it's, it's hard to relate, isn't it? I mean, what scarcity do we know? When we have, re- I mean, our biggest problem is deciding where to eat. Not if we can eat, Right? But for the mass, vast majority of history, this has marked and described humanity. So God's in charge. But notice also there is a timetable. Look at back at chapter 6, verse 11. Then the, the, the saints were crying out. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. There is a fixed number. This is part of what, what chapter 7 is about. We're going to learn about that next week. There is a fixed number. God knows who are his, and he's watching every single one. And he knows when the time is right for him to intervene in the way that he will. That's the affliction of humanity. Now let's look at the second point, the terror of judgment. So let me back up a little bit. What am I saying? Seals number 1 through 4 is just describing life in a broken world. You all see it. Many of you experience it, you understand it. This is not some future cataclysmic event that's coming. It's the world we live in, but it's not a world out of control. It is under the sovereignty of a loving, all-powerful God that is using these things to redeem his people and judge an unbelieving world. The fifth seal we just looked at reveals that these broken realities impact God's people, and this rebellious world will be judged because of it. Friends, it's in some It's an amazing reality that though while God is using suffering to refine us, he also holds responsible those who cause the suffering. Seal 6 and 7 reveal this judgment. The sixth seal gets open. Look at verses 12 through 17. It takes up the largest amount of time. What are we looking at here? Somebody after first hour told me, man, we, we talk a lot about creation and recreation. Verses 12 through 17, it's talking about uncreation the great earthquake, the sun goes black, the moon goes red, the stars fall from the skies, the sky itself rolls up, mountains and islands are removed. And I thought that was beautiful. That's kind of what we see happening, uncreation taking place. So what is verse 12 through 17? Friends, the time has come. In some sense, the problem is you just read verse 11 where the Lord says to the saints, not yet, wait a little longer. Verse 12, that time has come. Whatever number that is that has to be met has been met, and the day of wrath has shown up. What we are seeing here in verse 12 through 17 in the sixth seal being broken is nothing less than the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look at that description. 
the great earthquake, the sun going black, the moon going red, stars fall from the skies. How do we know this is the second coming? Because this is what Jesus told us. If you're a note taker, write down Matthew 24 and, and Mark 13. Because in Matthew 24, Mark 13, when Jesus is telling his disciples what, what's going to mark the end of all things, he says, the sun's going to be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. That's exactly what we read right here. And we see here in verse 17 at the end of chapter 6, a second very interesting question. Let's read it, verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? So the first question is, 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 is issued by God's people. How long, Lord? How long do we have to live in this broken world? How long do we have to suffer at the hands of people who reject you and we feel that fallout? And the second question is issued by those who rebel against God. Who can stand? Who can stand of what's taking place? Friends, let me ask you this question. If you've read the book of Revelation, what's the most terrifying thing in the book? I mean, there's a lot to choose from. What's the most terrifying thing in the book of Revelation? According to chapter 6, it's not the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's not the four living creatures that surround the throne. It's not even those amazing weird locusts in Revelation 9. It's a lamb. Can you imagine the irony of those? Have you ever seen a lamb? Trust me, you don't get afraid when you see a lamb. Not only is it just a lamb, but according to chapter 5, it's a lamb that's been slain. And yet the world is terrified of all that's happening. They're terrified of this lamb. You see, seals 1 through 5 are describing the reality we're living in right now. Now you say, well, is that, we're, we're not up in heaven. No, but keep in mind, this book is showing us this reality, and it's showing what really is reality. And so seals 1 through 5 is describing life in a broken world, and God's people are experiencing it, and they're feeling it, and they're crying out for God to do something. And he says, I will, when it's right. When the number has come, when every, the one, and I'm keeping my eye on him, and guys, next week, us, Tim's so lucky, he's preaching next week, he gets to preach the good news, I'm preaching like, the world's going to end, just deal with it, right? Um, but, and we'll talk about it, but chapter 7, and that's why chapter 7 is so specific with these numbers, it's saying, I know my people, I'm watching every one of them. In chapter 6, or seal number 6, is that future point the second coming of Christ. There is a historical fulfillment. We see it here at the end of verse 17, the great day of wrath has come. This brings me to the second point I want to make about reading Revelation. And that is this, friends. This is when I get very professor-like on you. Um, Revelation's not linear. Revelation is recursive. If you've been here a while, you've heard me use that word. Um, we read Revelation like we read most books, that the events of chapter 6 follow chapter 5 and precede chapter 7. That's just the way books work. There's a sequence. But that's not how Revelation is written by and large. Revelation is recursive. In other words, it curves back on itself. It often circles back and repeats the same message, but from a different perspective. So let me, let me for instance, let me say this. The realities of the broken seals, seals 1 through 5 in the chapter we're looking at, are in existence right now, and they have been existence in chapters 2 and 3 of our study of Revelation. Weren't the seven churches of Revelation experiencing scarcity? 
Weren't they experiencing the unrest of this broken world? Weren't they dying? So all the realities that the horsemen brought in, the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 experienced as well. And Jesus encouraged them to overcome because if they did, they would inherit the kingdom. And that their very struggles were refining them to become more like him. And didn't we even read that some of their rewards were what? White garments. Just like we read in chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. And so as Christ in chapter 5 is opening the seals of the scroll, right? He did that. He's describing the conditions of this world we're living in. And as these horsemen come out upon the world, he's making the point, they're just not running roughshod on the world with no meaning or purpose. There's a purpose behind it all. And the Lord God Almighty controls it. And the sixth seal shows the second coming itself. Okay, now, if you're paying attention, you should be asking this question. Wait, if you're making the case that at the end of chapter 6, that's the second coming of Jesus then why do we still have another 16 chapters to this book? I mean, right, what's going on with all that? That's because, friends, the next 12 chapters, right up until chapter 19, we're looking at the same period of time from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to his second coming from different perspectives. You see, what makes people so confused about Revelation is they're looking at it linearly, so they say, oh, there's all these 21 judgments. There's these seven bowls, and then there's seven trumpets, and then there's seven, excuse me, seven seals, seven trumpets, and then these seven bowls. But the reality is, that's just the seven things we're looking at from three different angles. We're looking at the same time period. Now, I want to finish by looking at chapter 8 and then kind of make a couple comments. So let's jump to chapter 8 because chapter 8 introduces us to what? The seventh seal. Notice how chapter 7, an entire chapter, has nothing to do with the seals. And I'll explain that in a little bit. A little bit. So ch- chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, remember this, this is still chapter 5, right? The, the Lamb receives or he takes the scroll and he's opening the seal. So that's what they're referring to. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Okay, let's pause there for a second. The seventh seal, they say, is the seventh seal silence? It could be. The silence could mean a couple things. The calm before the storm, right? It could be the calm before the storm of the events that we just read in chapter 6, verse 12 through 17. It could be the Lord saying, I want everything quiet because I am listening to the prayers of my people from the fifth seal in chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. He is listening to their cries. How long, O Lord? That's what could be the silence about. It could could be his coming, the calm before the storm. We're not sure. Then verse 2. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So one other thought is that the seventh seal, what, what the seventh seal is are these seven trumpets. Honestly, I, I, I don't know. I just don't. I, I think that's probably the best way to look at it. The silence is punctuating. Things are changing. It's going to get even more drastic. Here come out the seven trumpets. That'll make sense in a moment. I'll get to that. Verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Now, guys, what we're reading in verses 3 to 5, I believe is unpacking even more the prayer of the saints in the fifth seal in chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. And the reason being is in verses 3 to 5, three times it's referring to the altar and the prayer of the saints, okay? 
And look at and, and the response. Um, uh, verse 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel, and the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and earthquake. So the best I can imagine, guys, is that this in, happening in chapter 8, okay, is telling us what's the prayer of the saints in chapter 6. And God says, wait till the time is fulfilled. The time is now fulfilled, and God is answering the prayer. At the end of the section, chapter 8, we see this phrase, peals of thunder, rumbling, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. That should be sound familiar because where did we hear that before? The very throne of God. What did that represent? Exodus chapter 16. What does Exodus 16 represent? That God is coming down in all his glory and might to take care of business. And so what's happening is we're, we're, we're seeing this kind of, it's like that Christopher Nolan flash forward, flash back kind of thing. We, we hear about the saints praying, God, when are you going to avenge us? When are you going to do something? And in chapter 8, those prayers are building up and God says, the time has come. I'm taking care of business. And at, at the end of chapter 8, verse 5, God's presence shows up, and that is, in part, the second coming right there. So, okay, you guys are like, what the heck's he talking about? Let me try and unpack it for you, okay? So the seven broken seals that we're studying today and, and a little bit tomorrow of chapters 6 and 8, then you have the seven blaring trumpets of chapters 8 through 11, and then you have the seven bowls of wrath in chapters 15 to 16. Each of these sections, they culminate in the second coming. When you read them, and, and we'll read them as we go, each of these sections lead to a climax, and the climax is the second coming of Christ. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Notice the cataclysmic language of what we just read here. The sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky vanished, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Sounds pretty bad, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure life on this planet could survive if the sky vanished. I don't even know what that means. Or every mountain and island was removed. This is cataclysmic language. But this is in the sixth chapter, okay? This, this ends the seven seals, so to speak. Now let's look at when the seven trumpets, the end of the seven trumpets in chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, and this is a victorious scene, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Sounds pretty much like God wins, right? I mean, that sounds pretty, dun, 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 I'm done, the kingdom of this world is now mine, but this is chapter 11. Look at the few verses after this. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Sounds like, by the way, does that sound familiar, that scene? Where did we read that scene? In the throne room, chapter 4 and 5. So we're seeing the reality of this vision in the throne, and it's becoming the reality here, but it's only chapter 11. 
But look in chapter 16, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. This is cataclysmic language, whether good or bad. You see what I'm getting at here is all throughout the book of Revelation, there are sections that say, dun, I win, God wins, it's done. Well, why are there several of those in the middle of the book? If you're reading this thing linearly, it doesn't make sense, and this is partly why we have kind of created a lot of these amazing schemas to figure this out. We just realize Revelation is recursive. It's, it's repeating the same events, but emphasizing different realities, responses, and effects. Let me make the case for you. If every mountain and island was removed from its place in chapter 6, verse 14, then why do the islands and mountains flee in chapter 16, verse 20? Uh, they already did that. Why are they doing it again, right? If the stars fell to the earth and the sky vanished in chapter 6, verse 13, then why are there still two-thirds of the stars to fall in chapters 8 and then again in chapters four, 12? Right? Well, what's going on here? Finally, if the sky vanishes in chapter 6, verse 14, how can chapter 20, verse 11 speak of the sky fleeing? Isn't it already gone? You see, what's happening is it's not a linear reading. It's being recursive. It's coming back to understand this is what's happening. If you didn't get it the first time, let's come back to it and show you a different response, a different effect, a, a different situation, a, a different response to the situation, but it's the same events taking place. You see, so let me, let me, let me put these together for you. The seven seals explain the overall condition of a world broken because of its rebellion against God and its rejection of the Lamb, and the fact that God's people themselves even experience that brokenness, yet it's not all out of control. It's under His sovereign purposes, and He will make it accomplish what He intends to. The seven trumpets are blowing as a warning to those who stand against Him, that His punishments will come, and as punishment for persecuting His people. The seven bowls of wrath are for those who do not heed the warning trumpets and refuse to bow the knee or confess what Christ is and who he is. And finally, his wrath gets poured out here and throughout eternity, which is why Paul says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed. Present tense indicative, not will be. The wrath of God is being revealed now against all unrighteousness. Why does he say that? How can he say that? Because it's happening. The seven seals are just saying, this is the condition of the world. We're all in it, and God's people experience it. And God will punish those who've made it this way. The seven trumpets are saying, hear the warning. Hear the warning. See what's going on. Experience a broken world. Call out for mercy. And the seven bowls of wrath is saying, if you do not turn and receive the work of my son who took my wrath, then you have to take it for yourself. But here's the good news, friends. In each of these cycles, whether it's the seven seals or the trumpets or the bowls, in each of these cycles, there's interjected a vision of how God is caring and, and, and loving and protecting his people, which is why um, uh, this sermon didn't have a fourth point because I would be starting my point four now and I've just run out of time, right? My, my fourth point, which is going to be next week's sermon, is the safety of God's salvation. And that is exactly what chapter 7 is all about. In the midst of this chaos and calamity, God interjects this one chapter 
that even though we live in a world of war, scarcity, pestilence, disease, and death, God knows every one of his people, and he's going to bring them safely home. And that's the point of next week's sermon. Please show up anyway, because you really want to unpack that. All right, let me close with this. Um, If you're new here, we do these things called reflection services. We're going to reflect on May 23rd on this first section of the book of Revelation. But people have been sending me questions every week. And so I realize some other people have questions. So if you want a question answered that didn't get answered in a sermon over this section of Revelation, send an email to questions at ccclh.org. And on the 23rd at our reflection service, I'll do my best to answer each and every question that comes in. All right, guys, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We don't have to try and worry that this is something in the future. Actually, Lord, this is something that's taking place now. It it changes the way we live in the world even now. And Father, we with those saints cry out, how long does this have to go on? But we're grateful that we have the assurance of your word that regardless of the, the things that are affecting this world, that we can trust that you will bring your people safely through, that you know who we are and that you are present in the midst of this. Father, help us to be ambassadors because this world is hurting. It's not something that's going to happen. It's happening now. Father, and as Christians, we need to be awake to the reality of the world we live in. Father, embolden us, encourage us, and we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.